I love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. No, what I was saying is I was, um, uh, I did a podcast earlier with um, Dr. Greg Eccles. He's, oh, he follows you too. He knows yeah. who you are. Um, but I'm like, is the, today's the first day of the show that I've ever done anybody that's local to the Charlotte area. And I've got two at the same oh, time that yeah. I was recording. I was like, that's so interesting. And then I have Dr. Quek coming on oh. um, to as well. So I'm like, okay, now we're going to make it. It's all local Charlotte now. It's going to be yeah. all the Charlotte people now. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah, I love Dr. Eccles and um, worked yeah, with he's him. hysterical. I know. He's so funny. We worked with him on uh, Vets on the Rise, which is kind of one of my other little projects that I do that we um, target trying to help new veterinarians succeed in practice. And he worked with us over there and we we love him. So Yeah, yeah he's great. You, you And you authored a book on helping new vets um, yeah. get into practice, correct? I, I, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a book about like the 20 most common general, pra- general practice cases that you see and the tips for managing them. Because when you come out, oh, that's just like when you're new at anything, you just... You know, you're lacking the no experience. You got, yeah, you have a lot of knowledge, but you don't have a lot of that practical experience. And so it's the stuff that like we wish people would have told us about different cases in there. And um yeah. That's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad he was a part of that. He, I mean, he really is like the breath of fresh air we all need I know. with like the stress of the community and the Absolutely. suicide rates and everything like that. Everybody needs a comic relief. And I was telling him, I'm like, I love that it brings some empathy <clears throat> to the veterinary field and the veterinary industry from pet parents because they get kind yeah. of this funny preview, you know, it's yeah. funny, but it's true. And it's, it's funny because it's true. So they get that right. kind of like inside sight without, you know, anybody pointing fingers or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I totally agree. So, uh, anyway, um, yeah. on to you. So, yeah. um, Dr. Monica Tarantino, thank you very much for joining me. I'm really excited that we have a senior dog specialist because, um, it's not really something that you hear a lot about. And I, It's sad because I feel like they need so much more than the average adult dog. And I feel like they kind of just get left by the wayside sometimes. They kind of just deteriorate. And I feel like a lot of pet parents don't really understand what's available to them because the, you know, the the veterinary hospitals and clinics and the staffs there don't necessarily know everything that they can provide and the support that might really, really help them through that process because they're in the middle of that process, the the end of life and the aging and, you know, euthanasia and those difficult conversations I feel like people are so deep in it that they forget to step outside and think about things from the client's perspective. So I'm hoping that today you can kind of help other veterinary practices, assistants, technicians, veterinarians, any staff um, kind of outline some, outline some things that can better prepare not only their clients for what's going to happen in those senior years. I mean, we talk about, okay, now you're going to be seen twice a year instead of once a year for your annual visits, but other important things that aren't necessarily always covered to make it much easier for the pet parent that's actually going through that. So they feel like they're very supported, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you you touched on so many good points there. There is a huge gap in what we're taught when it comes to senior and older dogs. In fact, we're just kind of taught about dogs. We've got puppies and then we're taught about dogs and we recognize that they actually become senior at some point, but we don't have a lot of medicine or protocols or approach towards senior dogs and geriatrics that's specific to them. Which is ironic because as you know, and most people know that have had senior dogs and most people in the industry will know, those guys, that demographic is the demographic of dogs that has the most problems, right? Yeah. They're the ones with kidney disease, heart disease, arthritis, chronic pain, 
all of these different things. And so they really are the demographic of dog that needs the most help. And so um, I think that being aware of that is, is the first step, honestly, for practices and professionals in the industry to start treating them a little bit differently and, and honestly increasing owner awareness. That's a huge, that's a huge issue. A lot of people, <laughs> um, a lot of people, when they come to the clinic, they kind of want to stick their head in the sand about their dog getting older. Yeah. Because that, that it's you hard. To, yeah. You have to recognize these things that you don't want to admit, like they're getting older at some point, they may not be here. And those are some of the most important family members that we have, right? They've already been there for most senior dogs. They've been there with us for most, much of our life already, or 10 years plus or eight years plus, however, whatever, however long you've had them. And so they are already ingrained family members. Um, and they just mean so much to people. So a lot of a lot of parents like to stick their heads in the sand a little bit. And I get it. I totally get it. But I think that if we can kind of pull them out just a little bit and say, hey, to, you know, yes, this is a very important dog in your house or cat in your house. Let's talk about what we can do to make the, the their golden years the best. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so they they absolutely do have a lot of needs, and I do think that recognizing it. And just to clarify, I'm um, I'm not necessarily a senior dog specialist. I'm a general practitioner. I just have a keen interest in senior dogs, and really have dedicated the past, you know, seven years to trying to enhance and promote their health and awareness of the needs that they actually have. Because yeah, so many. thanks for that clarification. Yeah. It's it's um <clears throat> kind of one of those niche things, but also in terms of you know, becoming a specialist in, in that type of field, something that's that niche, but also just from an education perspective, is there really much available out there for, for senior level care in terms of continuing education or going into that as a specialty? Yeah. So there, there is not a senior dog specialty at this time. Um, I would love to start seeing that being developed. And at this time you can find, there are, there is some continuing education opportunities in like little, tidbits in different places, but there really is no cohesive place for senior dogs. However, uh, myself and Dr. Lisa Littman, who's another general practitioner, who's fantastic, and Dr. Lauren Adelman, who's a specialist, an internal medicine specialist, we are in the process of actually creating a senior dog uh, medical association for professionals that want to belong and learn more about it because there's been so much interest and people Excellent. haven't had a place to go. So we're in the process of forming that right now. And we're hoping that in January, we're going to start having some CE for professionals that want to learn more about senior dogs and just really kind of understand what that demographic really needs and what affects them the most. I think that'll be really helpful because again, yeah. being like knee deep in it all day, sometimes it's hard to see what to focus on. And when you have a senior dog that might be, you know, incontinent and have arthritis and maybe some intervertebral disc disease or something like that, you've got all these different comorbidities. It's kind of like, where do I start? How do I not overwhelm clients? What's the most important thing to deal with? So I think that would be extremely helpful to have more continuing education on that. Yeah, I do too. And that's kind of why we've seen this gap really in the knowledge that was, or in what's available for people. And we really want to try to help um, get practitioners and vet professionals just uh, some sources and some information on things that we've really seen help the practice with, when you're working with senior dogs. Are there any um, good books out there or any favorites that you have in terms of reading that can help with that? Um, so a favorite, and I'm like a, the biggest fan of her, but Dr. Mary Gardner, mm -hmm. she wrote a book about the geriatric, uh, the care of geriatrics. And I'm a huge fan of that. I think it's a really great place to start. She just has so much information. She's one of the founders of Lap of Love, um, yeah. which really has to focus on 
palliative and end of life care. And she is just, if you guys are, ever had the opportunity to get her on here, Sarah, I don't know if you ha- have, have or not. She's phenomenal. Um, and she's amazing. I haven't. Um, I know a technician that used to work for her um, or for the company as well. And yeah, she had a lot of really interesting things to say about it in terms of the type of care that gets provided and how um, specific it is to that, to that group. Yeah. It really is. I feel like it really is starting to develop more and more over the next, over the past few years and past decade. And I'm really excited to see where it goes to really help these senior dogs and these geriatrics because they just, they need so much help and the pet parents do too. There's so many issues. The other thing that I think is a really relevant topic is just the like pet parent dilemma when they've got older pets. There is this issue of anticipatory grief, right? Where you are starting to have this geriatric pet, for example, that you see is declining slowly over time and you literally have this fear of losing them. And that really can impact your days. You can find yourself really sad and depressed during the day. You can find yourself feeling different ways. And I think so many of us have actually felt this ourselves, this anticipatory grief, um, and not even really had a name to give it or or understood what it is, but it really is a, uh, I don't want to say condition, but it is something that's really very real that pet parents feel and all of us feel who love animals as our pets start getting older. So there's a lot that goes on, I think, in pet parents' minds and having worked with them a lot on online as well, there is a lot of kicking themselves and this guilt over doing this or not doing that. And you have to make these hard decisions when you've got senior dogs. So I think just having a deeper level of understanding with a lot of the pet parents can be really helpful too. Um, there are so many amazing ones out there and that are really want to do the best for their dogs and they really are struggling with decisions. And so I think having that understanding can be really helpful too when you're working with them. Well, and maybe you can shed some light a little bit too in terms of when to start some of those conversations with pet parents, because as dogs are aging and they're declining and we start <clears throat> talking to them about different things that can happen, it, it does get to a point where, especially for, you know, first time dog owners, we had a, so many dogs adopted, you know, at the start of the pandemic. And of course, a lot of dogs returned and they're yeah. in their shelter systems. But the point being is there's a lot of first time dog owners that have never been through that or didn't have a family dog or cat really, you know, growing up. So haven't been through the process of what to expect in terms of what do I do with the dog? Do I take it home? Do I stay with it and be present or do I not? What are the, the benefits, the pros, the cons? Um, there's such thing as communal cremation versus, you know, getting my ashes returned. What about mementos that each individual clinic does? So um, just in, in my experience, and you can probably help with this a little bit too, I feel that the earlier those conversations start, the less panicked they are, the less kind of impulsive they are, um, the less frantic things are when that time actually comes, even if it's a year or two years down the road, they at least have something on board that they don't have to add to that stress plate. So what are your thoughts on kind of when to start introducing those things, especially if you know you've got a first-time dog owner in front of you and they're maybe six, seven years old? Yeah. I mean, they're... So it's a really good question and there's a lot that goes into it as to when to introduce it because there are so many different situations that we see at the animal hospital. But certainly I, I, I do believe that um, if you have a older dog that you're diagnosing with chronic disease of some sort or that you are noticing any issues that are senior dog issues, such as disease of chronic pain or an age-related disease set in, I think that setting pet parents up with expectation with that disease and what the overall goal is, is really important right off the bat. And then encouraging them, you know, one of the things that I always do with them is 
setting that next step at that next goal. Okay. I'm going to see you back in three months because I need to check those kidney values again and just make sure they haven't worsened. Okay. From here on out, here's what it's going to look like for, for you guys because of this disease. And um, I really do like to talk to pet parents about quality of life. And I will do that when they are, when I start seeing diseases setting in for those pets, because in, I actually do it a lot at their annual exams, because I may see a large breed dog come in, for example, that's a little bit slow walking in, isn't on a joint supplement yet. The owners think that they get around just fine and are reporting no problems at home. Well, I'm going to start having that conversation about chronic pain due to joint disease, right? Or arthritis at that time. And then I also kind of paint the picture because a lot of times the large breed dogs, really the picture to me is, hey, you know, he's really healthy right now. But just so you know, when he starts turning 10, 11, 12, 13, if we're lucky enough to have him that long, these little things that you're seeing now, this arthritis becomes a really big issue. So what we do now with their weight, with their supplementation or whatever we're going to do for them, their pain meds is really going to make a difference on their quality of life. And, um, and I usually like to start kind of plopping that into their heads at those annuals, at those visits when they're, you know, older adult dogs so that they can start thinking about that and, and, and acknowledging that. Cause a lot of times they'll have had the experience of having a, a different older breed dog or, um, a different large breed dog previously in their life that actually did have arthritis and mobility issues older. And when you say that to them, you're like, Hey, remember, you know, they'll be like, yeah, I did have one. And they like, had ah. trouble getting up. Yeah. And so they're like, okay, I can see it. And they can start thinking about that now. So, well, and I, I, um, I want to stick with pain and discomfort for a moment because I think a lot of that gets missed. And and I work behavior cases in Charlotte. And it's one of the very first things that I ask, okay, what age of the dog are we looking at? What's the breed? Is it large? Is it small? Is there any chance for any pain and discomfort? Has the dog had um, a physical exam, you know, recently? And depending on the age, when was the last exam done? Um, because I want to help rule that out as a potential reason for some acute behavior changes or even some gradual behavior changes. Uh, but I feel like some of that gets missed a lot. It surprises me. Oh, I shouldn't say it surprises me, but that's why I do it. But um, often if they haven't had uh, a physical exam in a while and I'm kind of suspicious that something might be going on and sure enough, they, they go back to the vet. They say, you know, this is the reason she wanted me to come in and the vet does an exam and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we've got a little arthritis. The joints are a little bit creaky. In fact, oh my gosh, this knee, this knee seems a little bit bothersome. Yeah. We've got a partially torn cruciate ligament, whatever the case may be. Um, but I feel like that's one of those things that, the pet parents, not necessarily the vets. I feel like the vets are on top of that, obviously, but the pet parents are missing the um, progression of that um, and um, getting information out there too about how stoic they can be at times to where it's not always easy to see the progress of pain or discomfort. But um, you know, what do you think from an education perspective we can do with clients that you might see once, you might see twice that year and you make a medical note and you're like, mm, this one's kind of creeping up there. Um, yeah. we might start seeing a problem with pain. How do you address that? Um, in terms of, do we start early supplementation because I'm not going to see them for quite some time? Do we, you know, what's your, what's your initial step there? Yeah, I think this is a really, a really great question. So there's a couple things that you can do, um, on my website, seniordogrevolution.com. I actually have a free handout that you can give to owners that highlights the top three places that you will see chronic pain in senior dogs. And so I think, having information to actually give people is really important. I also really like to use in exam rooms, I like to use storytelling. Storytelling is just vivid. People understand it. doesn't matter what background they come from. They will understand storytelling. And so a really common story that I tell people, you know, there's, there's kind of two things when it actually comes to discussing chronic pain or pain in dogs. 
One is that a lot of people don't think that dogs, um, don't really recognize that dogs can have pain that just feels just like when we have pain. Right. And two, a lot of people just don't pick up on the signs of it because the signs are so subtle. So first thing that I really usually like to do is I, I have this story that I always tell people, <laughs> you can hear, I'm sure I've told it before in my podcast, but basically it's, it's the story of this first time I walked into an animal hospital and I was just trying to get into veterinary medicine. And I saw this, um, I got caught out to, to uh, help an owner get this Labrador in. It was a three-year-old Labrador that, that was coming in and she had gotten hit by a car and she had, mm. um, was coming when I went to go get her and help the elderly owner get her in, the dog was walking into the clinic on three legs she had a broken back leg. And what was that dog doing when she was coming into the clinic? She wagging was her wagging her tail, <laughs> saying hello to everybody, just like thinking it was like a party. And the question is, okay, like, did that leg not hurt? That broken leg not hurt that dog? No, that broken leg definitely hurt that dog. We finally had to get her to the back to take x-rays of her. It was extremely painful. We had to sedate her, but they just don't show pain the same way that we would expect them to. And that's usually the first point that you really have to draw home, draw, drive home with, with pet parents is that pain is the same between between us. Like they experience pain just like we do. Um, and similar studies have shown that there's similar thresholds, right? They hurt similarly to us from similar injuries, but they do not speak or communicate to us, which Sarah is probably like what like you always say, I'm, I'm guessing with your training, they do not speak or communicate to us in the way that we would expect them to. It's all- And vice versa. Yeah. yeah and we are not communicating too. with them the, the way that we think they are receiving that information. Yeah. 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 And so I think that storytelling can be really helpful. I think that that consistently um, having teams, like for example, at vet clinics, we like to have our nurse team is extremely at the hospital I work at. They're very educated. They're fantastic. And so they will hear it once from the nurse. They'll hear something about it. Oh, any signs of slowing down? We're asking the right questions. How does he get in and out of the car? Well, he's a little slower than he used to be. Um, and so they're hearing it once from our nurse team and they'll point out, well, sometimes that could be a sign of arthritis. Let's see what the doctor says. Um, and then they're hearing it again from me and then we're sending home handouts. And it's just like this, like you've got to like layer it on. And then you also yeah. got to see where where is the where's the communication breakdown between you and the owner because they want the best for that pet. So where's communication breakdown? Um, and then I, I will also, if a lot of times too, when I'll see pet parents of an older dog and maybe they haven't been there for a while and I'm noticing signs of chronic pain, I actually can't get that. I honestly, sometimes I cannot get the pet parent to get from the step of not recognizing chronic pain at all to get their dogs on medication right away. They're not going to jump there. And so what I'll often do is I'll, I'll, I'll take them step by step and I'll guide them through it. Okay, here's what I want us to do. The next month, I want us to get her started on a joint supplement and get this weight, start working on the weight loss. I want to see you back here in two months because I've got to see what this mobility looks like. I am concerned and I do think that she can't tell you this hurts. And then the next two months later, I might actually see if I can get them to do a medication trial. Medication trials can be really helpful too. And the really important part with communicating about when you're doing medication trials for things like arthritis is that is that the dog or the cat is not going to go back to what they look like when they are two years old. So if that's right. the expectation for the medication, you're not going to see it. What we're looking for when we're adding things in is a 10% improvement, another 10% improvement, another 10% improvement so that we've got more and more comfort for that dog. Um, and so setting that expectation of what we're looking for can be really helpful as well to get owners 
to... I think that's really important. I'm just going to put an exclamation point by that because mm -hmm. I, I do think that often pet parents don't know what to expect or they have a diff completely different expectation. And I do feel like sometimes they think I am going to get my old dog back. They're, they're going to jump in the car gracefully and beautifully like nothing was ever there. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there is a communication breakdown sometimes of what's expected um, in terms of, you know, what, what the veterinarian that's prescribing is expecting versus what the pet parent is, yeah. is expecting. So that's a really, really good point is being sure to openly kind of communicate. Here's what to expect. Here's what to look for. Right. Um, and then also, you know, <clears throat> I always get concerned about those follow-ups and I love that you're asking people to come back after two months. Um, but it's one of those things I see sometimes and in, in some of the hospitals I'll do relief shifts in, they will set a reminder in the computer, whatever software they're using, they'll call and check in on Sparky and see how Sparky's doing. But if they get the voicemail, which usually they do because they're calling in the day during work mm -hmm. hours, whatever the case may be. And it's, Hey, if you have any questions or concerns, please give us a call back at your earliest convenience. I used to do it all the time. Um, but if that owner doesn't call back and they don't check back. Yeah. Often I feel like that gets lost in translation. So is there any system that you follow in particular to make sure those clients, especially with dogs that are starting to feel discomfort or pain or that you've started a process with to help them through that, they kind of get lost by the wayside. How do, how do you prevent that? Yeah. Um, I mean, for our hospital that I work at, I will simply put in phone calls to people to call back, but I actually asked for an update on the, on the reminder. I'm like, call them and then report update back to me. And what that usually ends up meaning is that that phone call doesn't get completed when you leave a message. The phone call gets completed once I get an update back from the owner. So maybe it's the front desk will send them a text the next time and just say, hey, Dr. Tarantino's wondering how you know Fluffy is doing at home. Please give us a call back. And so I think that um, I think that just little tiny systems like that can be really can be really helpful. Um, we also have reminders for checks every six months in our senior dog. So if they're not answering my phone call in two months and my our text that we send out or the email that we send out, then they get definitely a reminder for coming back for that six month check. So even if we kind of miss them in that two month, the hope is that, well, a few months later, they'll be getting another reminder of phone calls from us um, for follow-up. So yeah, gotcha. yeah, certainly things can get lost to follow-up and that can be really uh, frustrating uh, for, for many, for, for a lot of people involved, but yeah, I do think that being persistent can be helpful and, and having a good reminder system in the computer can be really helpful. Do you typically do, um, pain scores at each exam with your, with your dogs and cats? Yeah. I think pain scores are really helpful, um, to help pet parents out for, for sure. And, um, I, we do pain scores. I actually like to set up like these like whole like arthritis management plans for them. And I kind of let them know what my graduated levels are going to be and where we're going to be going. So they have an idea that, hey, we're just here at supplement level. But in six months, I think we're going to be starting some anti-inflammatories for your pet. And so that I think that just kind of like planting the seed in, pet, in people's minds so that they kind of know what the plan may look like for them is really helpful, too. And um, it's the thing with arthritis management plans is that they just, they, they differ so much based off the pet and the things that you're actually seeing and where they actually have the pain to in the degree. But yeah, I think pain scores are fantastic too. Yeah. I love the plan because it, it gives sometimes, especially when owners are nervous or afraid of what's going to happen to their, you know, their pet, their family member, it gives them, okay, I know what the next steps are. I know what we're doing to help this all along the way. And that right. probably makes them feel a lot better about the whole process in general, instead of we're going to try this and we'll see how things go. Okay. Yeah. And then what, <laughs> you know, yeah. what is the full plan? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that that is, is really important. And it's interesting too, to me, because one of the things that we talk about a lot, you know, when you ask owners what they want from their dogs, they want them to like live forever. That's like what they always say. They're like, I just yeah. want them to be here with me for forever. And, and we all know that's not really possible, right? But, but like, okay, what, step two. Yeah. <laughs> step two. All right. Well, let's, is... yeah, our second wish. And I always just try to reorient them to the goal. I think if you can kind of just be really practical with pets and pet parents, it can be really helpful. But I just think that reorienting to them to the goal that we want a long life, we want the healthiest and happiest life they can possibly have for as long as possible, right? So we don't really want the longest life. I don't want them to have a long life with chronic pain from dental disease and arthritis that's unmanaged. You know, it does. It's not a win if we can come in and say, "My poodle made it to age 19, and they never had a dental in the past 10 years." That's not a win for that dog. I mean, they probably yeah. had chronic pain their entire those last years. That's not a win for me. The win is if I can keep my dog feeling as good as possible for as long as possible. That's the win, and yeah. that's the goal. I think that's, that's really, a great way to put it. Yeah, and I think that's really the goal that I try to orient pet parents that have these senior dogs that have multiple conditions because we're kind of just at this point sometimes with these geriatrics and senior dogs where we're just like, all right, we've got heart disease, kidney disease, arthritis, <laughs> you know, like all like all these different things. We don't know which one's going to take your pet. I don't know. Yeah, but I do know that our goal for them is to manage them as well as possible for as long as possible, so that you know, Fluffy has the longest, the the happiest life for however many, many more days that we have with them. And I think that that can be really helpful to so understand the goal. Okay. Like, yeah, like I've got this dog one. I think this establishment of one, you've got a dog with multiple diseases because some people just don't, it just doesn't sink in that their dog has a lot of things going on. And so yeah. just being like, there are multiple diseases here. Step one, that's what you've got. It's fine, but that's what you have. And then step two, our goal, none of these are curable. Our goal is to manage this as best as possible for as long as possible, as long as they're feeling good. Because nothing, nothing beats quality of life when it comes down to it. I can have a dog, for example, that can have, be a geriatric, they're not, and they can have the most beautiful blood work, the most beautiful x-rays and ultrasound. And if their quality of life is down here, is really low, well, the the blood, the beautiful blood work doesn't matter to me. It's the quality of life that matters to me. Right. And right. so that really is the ultimate goal is that quality of life for these senior dogs and these geriatrics. Well, and helping pet parents understand that they have emotional states as well. I mean, you think about it, um, often people don't realize they experience pain the way that we experience pain. And, and while emotions may be different, they do experience them. So, you know, depression, um, especially from chronic pain, chronic fatigue, things like that, um, just opening that door for pet parents to understand that um, they do experience emotional states as well that um, can be um, dictated sometimes by their their overall health state, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I Do you mean, feel there's anything in particular that really gets missed um, more than not, or most frequently gets missed in terms of you know old dogs and the disease process, whatever it is that they might be dealing with, whether it's pain or incontinence or heart disease, kidney disease? Um, I I do think that signs of arthritis are missed just consistently across the board, because there's this expectation as dogs get older that they're going to slow down anyways. And so it's a lot of times like, well, they're slowing down because they're old. And it's like, well, maybe a little bit, but like they also have arthritis. And so that's not helping them. So they've got things that we can treat or they've got diseases causing them to slow down as well. So yes, as they get older, they're going to get slower. But I think that certainly arthritis to me 
degenerative joint degenerative joint disease seems to be one of the biggest things as well as dental disease and dental health. Mm. Dental disease gives people a lot of anxiety because what's the fix to rotten teeth? It's anesthesia and it's putting them under and it's removing those teeth. And so a lot of people have a lot of anxiety with that, but most geriatrics and most senior dogs do really well with it. As long as your vet has screened them and made sure that they feel like they're a good fit, as long as you're doing the workups before the anesthesia, if they need one, then they're most, most of them do really well. You know, so um, I think that those two things are probably the two things that I think get missed or kind of put in the back burner the most, just inadvertently um, by really, really great people. You know, they all want the best for their yeah. dog. Yeah. So, but those are the two things that I think get missed, get missed the most. I see. Yeah. And they, they really want the best for the dog, but they don't want to lose their dog either. Yeah. It's really scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really scary. You hear different stories and, you know, you see it happen and it's so rare, but, but it happens and people cling to that one time they heard even a healthy dog went under anesthesia yeah. and didn't come back out. So it's scary. Yeah. Especially when you're already facing maybe even some of that anticipatory grief that you were talking about. Yeah. That can and be scary. I think so too. And I think, you know, the, the big thing that we talk about with dogs and they've used this term like age is not a disease for so long when it comes to things like anesthesia or anything. I actually hated that term. I hated that phrase when I was in vet school. Cause I, I think it just kind of, <laughs> I didn't feel like it really got to the point as much as possible um, or as clearly as it, as it, as it could have. But you know, the idea is that you're never not going to do a treatment just because of a, a dog's old. You can not make a recommendation because a dog has severe heart disease, congestive heart failure, severe kidney disease, severe liver disease. You can make a recommendation. You can uh, um, advise against a treatment because of a severity of a disease um, or quality life, but you're never going to say, I'm not going to treat that 17 year old dog because it's old, you know, and that's the the big thing with it. So I think that, you know, my hope is that, um, and I do see this, it's such an interesting environment right now online because there can be a lot of misinformed, like not spite towards veterinarians, but just, (laughs) just, you know, just some people that can be really hateful towards veterinarians, which is really unfortunate or vet professionals, which is really unfortunate. Um, but I actually do really see, I do see, at least in my practice, I feel like I'm seeing more pet parents that are trusting their veterinarians and having good relationships with them. And, and, um, really being great partners to deciding on whether or not to do anesthesia on a dog. You know, when I write, make the recommendation and I have a, a really old dog that I'm doing a dental on here shortly in a few days, um, when that has heart disease and, and low grade kidney disease. And Yay. she's got a really, I know she's got, a, I know always something to look forward to, but she's got a really rotten mouth. And the big concern that both myself and her parents have is that she hurts and I know she hurts. And so we have to have, I have to have a heart to heart with them and be like, look, she's really, you know, she's old. Yes. She's got these diseases and she's got this terrible mouth that I, we know hurts her. And so we've got to kind of decide I'm okay with, with moving forward with it. I think she's going to be fine for it, but um, we've got to be on the same page with this recommendation I'm going to make, which I'm going to recommend that she do, she do a dental. I can't 100% tell you it's going to be perfect. or It's going to go great or she's going to be, you know, make it. I do think she will. Otherwise I wouldn't recommend it, right. but, right. But, um, but there's a risk associated, but there's a risk with yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that just remembering like for, I always tell them, I'm like, there's a risk for myself going under anesthesia. There's a risk for you going under anesthesia. There's a risk for your dog going under anesthesia. We all have, we all have it. But 
the hope is that by this procedure, we're going to have improved quality of life for however long we're lucky enough to have her after this. And I think that having heart to hearts and just being really open and honest about it can be really helpful, um, mm-hmm. which can be challenging sometimes in, in, in the current state of vet medicine too, because people are so busy. Sometimes you may not really have that, that time that you really want to, to talk to pet parents about it. Um, maybe you're short staffed for the day, which is like, kind of like yeah. the big thing with a lot of vet hospitals right now. It's so horrible it can, right now. Yeah. Yeah. It can be really tough to, um, get the time to do that. But I think that really trying to trying your best possible to create that can be really uh, beneficial to everybody, all the parties. Yeah. And relying on your support staff as much as possible. So for example, um, I think it's really helpful if, you know, the assistant or the technician that is going to be monitoring anesthesia that day for, you know, the, um, the dog that's going under, if they're a part of that conversation where they're like, I'm going to take really, really good care of Fluffy. You know, I'm going to be monitoring Fluffy's blood pressure the entire time to make sure it doesn't get too low. We're using special fluids to make sure we don't push too much salt. If there's a heart, you know, whatever the case may be, any, any knowledge they have or any comfort they can bring to show there's a team looking out for your dog, a skilled team that's looking out for your dog, not, not just one person, not just, um, you know, oh, we're going to just kind of try this and see how it goes, but what are you doing? Okay. So we're going to, we're going to be running, you know, a monitor in it. And if you've never seen the monitor before, this is what it is. This is what it does. And I feel like sometimes that can really provide a sense of relief because we know what we're going to do. We know what we're going to hook up and what we're going to, how we're going to respond if something happens or something doesn't happen, if we need a bolus, if we don't, but the owners don't, you know, necessarily understand that. And I think just even, even a, you know, top overview, not education, not in depth, but just a couple of things coming from the team perspective where I'm going to be right there by your dog's side. I'm going to be monitoring all of these things and I'm the one administering fluids for your dog. You know, just, just a piece of that to show we've got a lot of people looking out for your dog while they're under and it's, it's, you know, we're going to do everything that we can and we are a skilled unit together. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point, Sarah. I, I love that. I do think that team involvement is really important. And I, I, I love having like our technicians go in and talk to owners after I'm making a recommendation for a dental because they're the ones that see what actually happens with the pets in the back. You know, they've seen all the dentals that we've done. They've seen all of the outcomes with the pets just as well. And so I really think that they have such valuable insight that can be really helpful to pet parents that are kind of debating, you know, struggling with a decision on it. So I, I agree. I think that the team being involved is really important. We do huddles, you know, especially on mornings of, well, every morning we do huddles, but um, surgery mornings, of course we do them. The t- entire team knows exactly what we're dealing with. You know, we know what the plan is. We know what the, we have a backup plan for if if X, Y, or Z happens, what we're going to do. And so um, I do think that communicating things like that to the owners can be really, really valuable, of course. Yeah, yeah definitely. Just just taking the edge off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, um, I, I agree. So speaking of taking the edge off a little bit, actually, uh, in terms of some of your specific treatment plans that you use, you know, a lot of people are kind of leaning in the direction of holistic treatments for for chronic pain um, and for some of the other ailments that we see very commonly with senior pets, geriatric dogs. Um, So what are some of your kind of go-tos in terms of starting out with tackling kind of pain and discomfort, um, especially more for your holistic pet parents, as that seems to be a very rising um, group of, of pet parents. Yeah. Um, so it, a lot of it really, really depends on the pets, but I definitely think that things such as diets can be really important to start. So there are some really great joint diets out there. You know, if you are more of the mindset of being like holistic, which I, 
I struggle with that, that term because like, I'm like, I'm holistic because I use different treatments, not just medication to treat the pet too, but, uh, yes. but, Integrative. uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but so I think many right veterans that are not termed holistic or alternative are still holistic in the way they approach a pet. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, um, diets can be really valuable. I mean, the best thing you can do is keep your dog trim right at the body condition score that's supposed to be, it is, it is so simple yet it is, it is not done consistently. And so, um, um, I think certainly using things like that, I think supplements that have some sort of science or research behind them can be beneficial. I really do not believe in taking like all the supplements that we see and just like throwing the dog on it because it, it's, it's just, it needs to really be targeted to what conditions that dog really has. And so we'll have a lot of, um, there's unfortunately so much misinformation online that it's just tough. You know, it's like, well, we have different things that come in with, with fads and whatnot about what's being talked about. You know, there's turmeric, there's, uh, all these different, uh, um, coconut oil for forever was, you know, the, the big thing. And so mm -hmm. I always just recommend, recommend sticking to a, a supplement that your vet's recommending and not adding in too many things all at once. I do really think that things such as physical therapy and maintaining the motion and the strength in those joints can be really helpful as well. If you're not really, if you're want to take a slower approach to uh, getting on medications, but um, I do think, and of course, you know, there are other things like you can always try acupuncture. You can always try laser therapy and whatnot too. heat therapy. There's a lot of different things you can try. I think they work differently in different pets. And I do think that making sure you're talking to the vet and having like a stepwise plan is really important. Cause if you're just starting everything all at once, you're never going to know if something's really, really going to be helping. Yeah. And so, yeah. And that can be hard, especially if you're, if you're looking at, you know, supplements, for example, if a veterinarian is trying to decide which supplements to use and you have, you know, supplements with like mannose for the bladder and, um, you know, the, the cranberry supplements and then, but this dog also has, you know, joint inflammation or is it has arthritis. And now we're looking at, okay, are we doing a glucosamine and chondroitin supplement and are we doing anything else to support it? Oh, well, maybe we'll put them on a turmeric supplement, but it has to have a catalyst that has a, you know, peppering or something in it to, to do that or a fatty acid. And then we're looking at fatty acid supplements. Um, and, and it's interesting because, um, I think you're right. I think a lot of times it's like, okay, let's try to tackle all this at once. And that can be really difficult. I've seen, um, actually my, I, I did this to my dog once too, where it was like, okay, we're going to do all the things. We're going to do all the things. And now all of a sudden I have severe gastrointestinal upset, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. which is not something you want in a senior dog. Like they dehydrate no. quickly and it becomes a big problem. And so, um, you know, it's something that I always think about is not just, yeah, throwing the kitchen sink at it, but yeah, I understand that there's six different things that the pet parent really wants to to tackle and they can put a lot of pressure on vets about getting to the bottom of all those things and fixing all those things and be very antsy about that. But um, kind of teasing out, you know, where do we start? What's the most important thing um, yeah. in terms of everything that we're dealing with? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's it's really easy to think that just because, you know, something is a supplement that it's, it's harmless. You know, it's like, well, we're throwing yeah. all these supplements on there. So it's it's fine. It's not medication though. It's supplements. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's just, it's not the case. Like we need to be really careful with what we're putting our pets on um, and making sure that it is, it is supportive of the conditions that they have and, and the whole pet and not just, you know, the one thing that you're trying to treat. So I do think that a graduated approach is really important and working with your vet on that is really important. And I, I really encourage pet parents that um, really want to have like a more holistic approach. I do encourage you that if you are getting to the point where your veterinarian is recommending medication to really consider it. 
Um, remember the, the goal really is to enhance their quality of life for as long as possible. And I've seen so many older dogs and geriatric dogs just do really well in medications once we get them on it. So I encourage people not to be shy, but I do think, you know, certainly when we talk about arthritis, we talk about a, um, a multimodal approach, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just relying on a medication and then just saying, that's it, we're good. Um, it's relying on different uh, ways to hopefully support that pet's joints and uh, as they get older. Yeah, no silver bullets. Um, yeah. Do you have specific um, go-tos in terms of supplements and medications that um, you use frequently with dogs with chronic pain or, or degenerating joints? Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely, I do like, there are quite a few joint diets out there that I, I like. A really great supplement that I like um, is VetraScience Glycoflex Plus is one of my favorites. It's got really great glucosamine. They they do science and research behind their products, so it's a really great product. Um, but I do think I think it's it's hard to recommend like a specific thing for people because um, I don't want people just to jump and like be like I'm going to get this and this is what. Dr. Tarantino said, no, but, no. but, but so, yeah, no, for your vet, yeah. <laughs> for your, your veterinarians, yeah. some of yours, because you're in this, you see yeah. this, you, you love the yeah. senior dogs. So in terms of like what, what advice you can give veterinarians that are thinking about helping them through this, or they have a client come to them and say, I'm not ready for medication yet, or I am, or maybe a combination. And I've done all my own Google research. Yeah. You know? I was... What do you kind of weed out and what do you say? Okay. Start here. If you're thinking about helping your client with supplements. Yeah, I think the fir the first thing to try to do is to try to talk if they're if they are concerned about arthritis and they're coming to you, I think the first thing to do is try to um, get them onto an arthritis management plan and to talk about them as this being a graduated plan, because with arthritis you, it's going to get worse, it's going to progress as it gets older as they they continue to age. Um, and like I said, I don't like to throw the kitchen sink at them, so I'll usually start yeah. with one or two things. I'll be like, here's our goal for the next three months. We're going to get 10, we're going to get, I don't know, five pounds off of them. Okay. We're going to start them on just this supplement. And then I want you to start, you know, those two things. And then I want you to start thinking about physical therapy. And I'm going to show you the place that I want you to think about going to for that. And so, but I want to see you guys back in three months and let's reassess. And so those are things that I will do. And then at that time I'll do medication, you know, if I feel like they, they need it at that time. Um, oftentimes by the time they're actually showing signs of arthritis, arthritis as well, is well progressed in those joints. And so I really do not shy away from medication. There are classic, um, there, uh, there are different medications. There's pain medication like gabapentin. There's anti-inflammatories like, um, uh, Galaprant or Rimadyl or Deramax or whichever one that you guys, you know, that you guys have in your clinic. I think that when I am trying to start a pet parent on, or a pet on one of those medications, what I will often do is I will do a two week trial with them and then have a phone call with them um, about it and say, how are you guys doing? Like, have you noticed improvement? And I had that conversation that we talked about earlier, Sarah, where it's like, we're looking for a 20% improvement. Okay. We're not looking for a two-year-old. It's like, we're looking for 20% improvement. Let's talk in two weeks. I want you to let me know how it goes. And so I'll start one medication and go from there. And if they seem to do well, then I'll ride that out and be like, okay, great. Let's come back in four months or, say, or their annual or their semi-wellness and let's talk about possibly doing something different. But I really use all of the things. Like I use all of them. <laughs> I do have other, you know, I talk about Becca, my, um, I have a 17 year old lab mix and her, she's got all, all of the issues. She's got a brain tumor. She's on seizure meds for, she's got Aww. a liver tumor that's really slow growing and she's got severe mobility issues. And so we decided not to operate 
on her liver tumor because of how bad her arthritis and quality of life issues was with, with regards to that. So, um, you know, Becca, and this is not to say this is what you guys should do with your clients. Becca's been on Rimadyl for, for five years straight. She's yeah. been on Rimadyl for five years. And the question is, is okay, do, um, you know, people are like, well, should she be on these chronic medication? Well, listen to this. Becca does not have good days unless she's on her, her anti-inflammatory. And for yeah. us, it's all about Becca having good days and for whatever. And so we check Becca's um, blood work every four months just to make sure things aren't getting out of whack, but it was a really easy decision for us. We used to kind of just use it as needed for her when she first started having it. We started with gabapentin and then it got to the point where we would notice like she just really struggles to get up when she doesn't have it on board. And that was a decision for us. And so I will talk to pet parents about that too. If I have a dog like that, they're like, they just do really well. I'm like, well, here's the risks. And here's what I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. If you guys come in every four to six months for your blood work and you're okay with that, but our goal with your pet is this good quality of life for as long as we possibly can have them. And so I think that, um, I, I don't shy away from that because of it, uh, because of the, the effect that I've seen things like that have on my, on my own dogs. Yeah. Sometimes the downside doesn't come anywhere close to, um, overpowering the benefits, the great benefits. And there's a risk with everything, like literally everything, but it is, it's like, what, what, what combination or what can we do that's going to provide the most comfort outcome for the dog that's in front of us? Is it, is it great to have them chronically on it for five years? Well, maybe, maybe not. Some dogs will do just fine. You'll not, you won't see any changes whatsoever. Some dogs will have the changes that we talk about and that we're concerned about. Um, but at the end of the day, is the dog doing better on it or stabilized on it? And, and how does that contribute to like what you were saying, quality of life? I mean, that is, it is the most important thing, their quality of life, not necessarily what we think is happening or what we think is best or what we think is going on, but, but looking from the dog's perspective anyhow. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So definitely, I mean, the, the big thing is the multimodal approach and, 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 um, uh, thinking about it from different, different angles, I think is really, really important. Yeah. So. And I, I like that theme. I mean, I have that theme and behavior. It's huge because it's like, there is no one silver bullet. Yeah. We're not going to te- tackle separation anxiety with this. We're not just going to onboard a psychopharmaceutical and boom, the dog is fixed. Right. <laughs> like it's, yeah. It's very multi- multimodal. And I think most things are, and that sometimes pet parents aren't aware of that, right? They're like, right. oh, well, my dog is hurting. We give it this and then we're done. Well, no, because we're probably going to have some continued decline and this is going to kind of stabilize things. But here are these other things that you can do, you know, with your physical therapy and making sure you stay checked in. And we're doing those pain assessments to really make sure we're doing everything that we can right. for your pet in front of you. So um, I, have, I have a question for you because I feel yeah. like this is a, um, a debate from veterinarian to veterinarian to veterinarian. So the glucosamine chondroitin debate, I'm going to ask you about this one. Yeah. And um, uh, fatty acids, not so much, but I see a lot of um, conflicting information sometimes about, yes, let's onboard glucosamine and chondroitin as early as possible and keep it going versus no, we're kind of already past the point because the dog is already suffering from some of these various things. So it's not going to have any effect necessarily or, um, taking them off after a certain amount of time or a certain age. Um, and so I just, I get a lot of conflicting information in terms of, um, when to onboard that, when not to, because it's not going to do anything, or if that is even kind of something to consider. Yeah. I think it's a really, a really great question. I think the reason why we 
you're having so much conflicting information on is we really just don't know, right? We don't know like the data out there, it's conflicting and we don't, and we actually don't have some data for some of the, some of the stuff that you're talking about. So I would say that in general, I think it just is clinician preference. What I end up doing is for most large breed dogs that I think are going to have some sort of joint issues later on because that their skeleton wears out like large breed dogs, their skeleton literally wears out early, earlier than oftentimes in our small breed dogs who still have arthritis, by the way, I don't think it's disregard, disregard that in them because they will have that. Absolutely. But, um, I tend to start them on it earlier. So maybe when they're a young adult, I'll start them on it and just have them on it. And, and I don't know if it's going to help them when they're 10 at that point, but I I'd like to hope that, that, that it would. So I think that's really clinician preference. And there really isn't a lot of data on that. And that's kind of why there's, there's so much conflicting information as to when to start them on it. Um, but I tend to, if a pet is doing well on a, a glucosamine product when they're older, I don't tend to take them off of it. I tend to leave them on it. Remember that product, usually those products, and I tell people too, I don't actually know if it's going to really support your pet's joints because I think it works for some pets really well and some pets, maybe we don't really see anything. Um, and right. so for those products though, the really important thing to remember is that you're not going to actually see an effect, even if it's going to be that little 10% effect from it until you're at least four to six weeks into using it right? With those products. So with glucosamine. So that's important. Most of those actually have a loading dose and then they go into a maintenance dose. And so following the instructions on the bag can be helpful when it comes to those. Yeah. And I think that is incredibly important too, um, is, is making sure that pet parents are aware they're not going to see something, you know, within the first week. I mean, maybe that could be, but that's not often the case. And so just being really clear and open that, um, you know, there is an onboarding period for this and, and make sure that you're following the directions because it's not, you know, give one tablet once a day, boom, we're done. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah, I think right. that's important. Yeah. Um, you had talked about nutrition a little bit and I kind of want to touch on that too, because, you know, as dogs age, they start having kind of different needs. And I feel like sometimes nutritionally speaking, I think, I think a lot of education is coming out on nutrition as of, as yeah. of late, which is awesome. I think people are getting much more informed about what they're putting in their dog's bodies and what to avoid. Yeah. Um, but from a senior dog perspective, when do you start if you start looking at um, potentially changing some of their um, their nutritional input in terms of what types of diets that they're on, um, are there any key markers or key factors that you look for to say maybe we should consider doing something else? Um, I know that you know Joey here has been on the same diet since he was a year old, but now he's eight, nine, ten. Um, right. Or is there a period where you start saying, okay, is there something that could be more beneficial? Do we, do we leave it well enough alone? What are some of your factors for that? Yeah, I think that that's a really great question. Um, so for me, for senior dogs, really what I try to do with diet is I really let the conditions that are starting to develop in that dog guide my recommendations for the diet. Because a lot of times, you know, there are senior dog diets and some of those are really good diets and we can certainly consider switching them over to it but there is no AFCO definition of what qualifies a senior dog diet, right? So it's just really just a, a, a food company's decisions from up top or whatever. Yeah. Marketing <laughs> as to what they are. Now it's, this is a senior dog diet. And so what I usually end up doing, I do find that senior pets as they get older, I'll generally try to guide their diets based off of the conditions they have. So if I have an arthritic dog um, or a dog that's starting to show some joint issues, well, I'm going to put them on a diet that's going to help them with their joints, make sure it keeps them nice and trim. Um, uh, and that's me, what I'm going to try to guide them towards. If I have a dog that's got kidney disease, they're going towards a kidney disease diet, right? So I think yeah. that really what I tend to have to do with seniors and geriatrics is really guide them towards that. 
the biggest thing, you know, as they get older, um, is that they do tend to need a decreased amount of calories at a certain point when they become senior dogs. So usually it's about 20% decreased amount of calories when they start kind of slowing down a little bit. Um, but that changes as they sometimes for some dogs, as they hit their geriatric uh, years and they, they become, um, they actually start having cachexia where they can't really keep body weight on or muscle mass yeah. on. Right. And so there's no just like blanket statement for senior dogs, but in general, many senior dogs that are in a cachexic state will uh, need fewer calories. So I have owners watch their weight and make sure that that's really important because weight is so important to, to, to disease. You know, the amount of fat they have in their bodies is really important to their disease. And the other thing that I like to um, make sure for, for senior dogs in general, um, you know, the, the current like protein recommendations for them is usually between like um, 24 to 32% crude pro protein for them for their diets. And that's really important for them because, you know, the other thing that they actually are dealing with is sarcopenia. They start losing their muscle mm. mass, just like all of us. Yeah. We start losing our muscle mass as we get older. So making sure they have adequate protein in there. It doesn't have to be high protein. It's not what we're looking for, like these exorbitant amounts of protein. We're just looking for adequate amounts of protein in there for them as they get older too. So those are things that I'll look at at the diets for senior dogs. Um, but mostly what's guiding it for me is going to be the conditions that's, that's showing up. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Um, what about for cognition? Um, I mean, there are new, there, there is, um, there are diets out there that yeah. are specific to cognition. I really, I'm not sure how, um, I don't, I don't have enough education on how well there is in terms of an outcome for some of the brain diets and things like that, that are out there. But, um, yeah. what do you, what do you think in terms of that? If you see a dog that's starting to kind of slip or might be showing some early signs of cognitive dysfunction, is that something that you'll tackle nutritionally? Or are we thinking more, in terms of the um, lifestyle changes at home for the dog? Yeah. So I, I think that um, certainly like cognition is so important for them. Like it's just one of the, and, and that's, we, you asked me earlier, what are some of the things that you feel like go unrecognized in, in senior pets? And certainly cognitive changes is one of those things, right? Because they're really subtle as they get older. Um, and that definitely is one of them. But yes, absolutely. I do think diets can be really effective and helpful in managing cognitive changes. The big thing to remember when we're talking about things like canine cognitive dysfunction or doggy dementia is that that disease is very similar to human Alzheimer's. And that disease is not curable. It's not curable for people. It's not curable for dogs. But certainly there is evidence that goes to support that really your goal with that disease is going to be to help manage and to um, help support that brain as much as possible. So a lot of times you're looking at diets that are high, that are um, higher in medium chain triglycerides be, um, uh, or provide like ketones as a substrate for their brain to use because they're not as effectively processing the glucose in the brain at that time. Um, you're looking for diets that have higher levels of like amino acids, B vitamins, antioxidants like vitamin C and vitamin E and whatnot. And that has been shown to help improve the overall cognition of older dogs. Um, in a few studies. And so there are some prescription diets that do support that. Certainly Hills has a diet and Purina has a diet as well. Um, Hills is BD and then Purina NeuroCare is one uh, as well. And so, but those are the things that I'll usually be looking for. But yeah, I think diet can be really, really strong change for a dog that's starting to have doggy dementia signs. And it's a pretty simple one to do um, for pet parents. So absolutely, that is one part of the uh, approach to help manage changes in canine cognitive dysfunction. And what type of things do you um, typically have 
staff recommend in terms of how to help them? So with people with Alzheimer's, you know, we talk about like doing puzzles and doing memory games yeah. and trying to keep your mind sharp for the most part. So are there specific go-to things that you have that you think um, vet clinics and, and vet staff can recommend to their clients to kind of do that for dogs? Yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do for them, but certainly it always comes down to these basics that I, I always laugh about, Sarah, because these, it's like, when you recommend these really basic, simple things, people are like, oh, well, it's simple, so it's not going to work. Like, tell me about the supplement, yeah. you know? And you're like, no, <laughs> yes. like, but if you look at the science, like, it'll really make a difference. This is literally what works. Yeah. So I think, you know, the most important thing, um, a few really important things you can talk to clients about are going to be schedule. Okay. So a lot of it's about management. Their time clock in their brain is gone. Like it's, it's off. It does not work very well anymore. So they're literally up at night because they don't, their brain is, is, is allowing them to wake up at that time. So getting them on a routine and a schedule is really important for these dogs. You start seeing canine cognitive dysfunction. And then certainly physical activity is very important in keeping the brain healthy as well as mental puzzles and mental simulation. So you and I look for mental games or mental simulation for dogs, depending on how advanced their doggy dementia is. I look for things that are going to be challenging to them, but not frustrating to them because right. they can get really frustrated with something because they can't quite figure it out. And so you want to just look for games that do that. And it could be something simple from, you know, snuffle mats to other toys they can play with. If they're food motivated, that's pretty easy to um, sitting with them and playing different games, like, you know, choose a hand or something like that with for a toy in it. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do it, but absolutely physical exercise, um, mental stimulation, and then keeping them on a routine and doing those things daily and consistently is the most important, is the most important thing, which is what we struggle with. We're busy. Uh, pet parents are busy, but I talk to them about trying to get that into a routine. And usually I try to split it up into two times a day and smaller manageable chunks for them, um, to, because a lot of, a lot of senior dogs and geriatric dogs respond to that. A lot of times, you know, for Becca, for example, she can't walk very far right now. Um, we can go down, you know, probably like three or four houses at this point with her. And then we come <laughs> back and, um, uh, she, she does well if we take her twice a day, you know, she can do the three or four houses twice a day. So we can't do farther than three or four houses for any time, but we can do that twice a day for her. And that really makes a difference for mental stimulation and the, and getting out there and sniffing and the, her little stafaris that she does out there on yes. the way out. Um, there's a lot of different things that you can do that are pretty simple that are helpful. And then the mental stimulation too. A lot of dogs will lose interest or get frustrated, you know, or they'll be over it within 10 or 10 minutes or five minutes sometimes. And so incorporating that twice a day can be helpful or, or multiple times a day at certain times can be helpful for them too. Yeah. And I find that, um, one of the things that, that lacks for senior dogs and, um, that they, they tend to thrive on is that one-on-one -on -one time. So if they're getting frustrated with a puzzle or frustrated with a toy, I, I find often that just simple engagement with them, like you're participating with them, starts to decrease some of that stress and decrease some of that frustration. Not saying you can do it for 20 minutes or whatever, but yeah. um, I find that they really thrive on that one-on-one. -on -one. You notice like senior dogs start to follow you around more and yeah. you know, they kind of you know, really want to be present with you. Some of that might be you know, a decline in, in their sensory systems, but I really feel that they want that sense of closeness, at least a lot of them. Everybody's individual, of course, but um, I do see the, the one-on-one -on -one time as being something that I feel like a lot of, you know, poor senior dogs are lacking because they're napping and they're sleeping and they're just yeah. kind of doing their own thing. And we don't pay nearly as much attention as we do in their puppies to some of those needs because those needs are more subtle. They're more quiet. They've slowed down. But, um, yeah, for me, it's like, the, it's the one-on-one -on -one time if they're getting frustrated or they're, 
you know, and, and also, um, I don't know if you've noticed this with clients or not, but clients that have younger dogs that leave the senior dog at home and take the younger dog out for the walk because the younger dog needs the physical activity yeah. and the exercise yeah. and the senior dog can't go as far as the younger dog. Yeah. Um, so I, I love like stressing to them. No, they still need that. They yeah. still, they still really enjoy that. And I even go as far to say like, you can buy like animal sense online and you go out there and you can plan them ahead of time and know right where you're going to take your dog over right. and give them something new to sniff or enjoy or smell. And, right. um, and, and like you said, with the three blocks, like knowing their limit. So yeah. if you, you know, if you, if you take your younger dog out for, you know, your 20, 30 minute walk, and then you come home and you grab your senior dog and you can only go three blocks, like knowing that line is really good. Um, I've been stuck in that because I, I have pit bulls. So um, they're go, 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 boom, done. Yeah. <laughs> like they will push and push and push. And um, it's one of those things where you have to know where their line is for them because like Cosette, who you've probably seen pictures of her, she's my 15 year old yeah. rescue that we've had for about a year and a half, but she will get out there and she will trot and she's like, we're <laughs> going to do a freaking marathon. I am ready and go, yeah. go, 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 go. And then get to a certain point and be like, I don't think I can move. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we overdid it. You know, and pick her up, throw her over your shoulder yeah. and bring her home. And it's like, okay, maybe next time we go half the distance. Yeah. But no, absolutely. I think, I think that one-on-one time and really that quality time with you becomes even more important to them as they get older. Yeah. Like they really just thrive. Becca, for example, when I, um, we've got four dogs here and four senior dogs here. And when I stop mm -hmm. and pay attention to her, that girl, she just shines, you know, it's like, yeah. also she's got a spark in her eye. She's following me around more. She's just more engaged. And so absolutely. I think that quality of time with them is extremely important. Um, we do talk to, and I, I'm so glad that you talked to people about that because you're exactly right. That's what a lot of people say. They're like, well, the young dog needs it. They don't need it. No, mm -hmm. they actually really they need that one-on-one one time. One of the, um, pet parents that I spoke to quite a bit um, online, she did this thing that I was just like, you're just amazing. She has two Labradors, one that's a 13 year old uh, and other one that's like a six year old. And she actually has her pet sitter come and walk the six year old for her. So she can oh. go spend one-on-one -on -one time with a 13 year old and they can do their slow, you know, their slow oh, little it. trot together. And it just like, she got it. You know, she totally understood it. Like the most important thing was yes, let's get this dog, the older dog out for exercise, but also that quality one-on-one -on -one time is what this is really what he, he loves so much and she loved it. And so I just, you know, when I talked to her, she ended up losing him. We, she lost him uh, six months ago, but I, you just have, you have less regrets that way, right? When you're really diving into them that yeah. way, you, because you spent your last, she spent her last two years giving him her undivided attention every, I think it was like three or four times a week when she was doing that at least. And I know it was other times in her, during her day too, but um, setting that up for that. And I thought that was just such a beautiful thing that she did. That is. And never will you look back and be like, you know, I spent too much time with my senior dog before they left. No. Like, yeah. When are you ever yeah. going to have that thought? Like, you know what? I just, I, I didn't need to spend all that time with them. Yeah. Never. You know, it's yeah. like, I'm so thankful that I took the time and I spent the time. I mean, I took an you know, I'm privileged to be able to do this, obviously, but I took the entire week off. I canceled every client that I had, every obligation that I had. And my husband was wonderful because we have kids and you can't just like shut down as a parent. <laughs> but um, I spent like the, I knew it was going to be the last week of my last dog's life. And I, I just thought I'm going to give him 24 yeah. seven. And um, I tell you what, I was very sore at the end of that week because I was sleeping on the floor and next to him and catering to him and um, just doing everything I could for him. But um, it was nice to be able to give that time. And, you know, you look back and you're like, I'm just, I'm really grateful that I could give that to my dog. So, yeah. but even if it's not that much, it doesn't have to be that intense still as your dog is starting to decline, just 
I mean, even if five, 10, 15 extra minutes a day with them to really make the most out of that time, I think is great. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. They really, they really just thrive with it. Like they just do. They, they shine when you, when you give them that extra attention, that one-on-one attention and they, they do need it 100%. So, um, I think it's a really, a really great point. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have no idea how it's been an hour already, but I have <laughs> definitely taken a full hour yeah. of yours. So yeah. I'll wrap up with you, but um, not to get into a side tangent, I promise I won't take too much of your time. Yeah. For um, I just want to ask too, for vet hospitals that are looking to kind of improve their maybe senior care protocol or you know um, improve things in the exam room and improve their client education in terms of what to do for senior care, what would be the starting points that you would give them to say, here's what you can do. I know you've got your website, which is Senior Dog Revolution, and you've got stuff on there for them. So I think that would be a great starting point. But do you have other recommendations that you would make if someone's looking to really improve their kind of protocol and program for their their senior dogs? Yeah, I think that certainly um, heading to the website and looking there is really helpful. I also, if you are interested in learning more about it, I I do have a podcast called Senior Dog Revolution and um, podcast. And I just talk about senior dog issues that I'm constantly talking about on there. So if you just go and listen to that, that's it's really geared more towards pet parents. But if you listen to that, you're going to hear me talk about the things I talk about in exam rooms with pet parents. I think a really simple place to start if you're like, look, I want to help these senior dogs is bring a yoga mat to the hospital, make it the senior dog yoga mat. And every single time you have yes. a senior dog come in, get that darn yoga mat out into the, and make it a thing that the technicians do and they go in there, get that yoga mat out for them. They slip when I can't tell you how many times you know, I've seen people trying to go to get blood on a pet and they're like, they're slipping on the floor. I'm like, Hey guys, like, yeah. let's stop. Let's get that yoga mat out for them. This is, this can be, we can make this better for them. And so I think just starting there can be really important. can be really helpful. And then certainly um, coming out in January, 2023, Dr. Uh, Lisa Lippman, myself and Dr. Adelman, we're going to have some CE for you guys to take. That's going to go through senior dog care and senior dog protocols. But for now, I think those resources would be really helpful in just making that one step. Also, um, one thing that's really helpful in hospitals can be if you can, if you at team meetings, if you want to announce, Hey guys, I want to make things better for senior dogs here. And I wanted to know if anyone wanted to help form like a senior dog committee. So we can kind mm-hmm. of brainstorm together things that we can do differently or that we think can be helpful for them. And that way you get um, a group of, you know, people at the hospital working together towards this goal. And then you can start uh, hopefully getting some more uniformity with how to actually approach the senior dogs at, at your hospital and things and, and things that you guys see that work and really letting everyone contribute. You just, you just get so much farther when everyone contributes. So we all see so many different things. So I think that yeah, everybody really feels like they're a part of that process yeah. and have some ownership to, to make things better. I right. really think that sticks with staff, especially your assistants and your technicians being oh, a part of that. Absolutely. And they're the ones that are going out there and getting the dog. Like they're literally have the hands on the dog more than I do. Right. <laughs> and so, um, I think they're, they're just vital to it. And one more thing, um, Sarah, that I wanted to mention before we close up here is that yeah. for, uh, oh, if- I'll keep you on here all day. So, you, know. <laughs> you say whatever you'd like. <laughs> um, well, I just wanted to mention too, because I don't think this is talked about enough and and we are just starting to get the word out to the, to the vet community and vet professional community is that we do have, so if you do have senior pet parents, senior dog pet parents, senior cat pet parents that are struggling with anticipatory grief, or you think they're going to have a really hard time after they lose their pet, because we all know how terrible it is losing a pet. We do have, um, we, uh, we have also formed the pet loss community, which is something that myself, Dr. Lisa Littman, 
um, form together as well. And there's a whole website. If you go to petlosscommunity.org, you can actually look. There are free resources there for pet parents. And that's it. And there's a handout on anticipatory grief that talks about what it is and what they may be feeling. And then there's also a handout on a pet loss grief. So, and they're just free downloads that they can have um, to, if you feel like they might have, they, they might benefit from that or they may be struggling with it. Because a lot of people just don't know about those topics. So being aware of that can be really helpful. And then we also offer there, we do group support sessions. So we get on with like, you know, five to 10 pet parents and a Zoom. And we've got um, people that lead group support for them. And then we also have one-on-one support for them as well. Um, that they can look into too if they really need need that extra support. But there's a free downloads on there that I, I just encourage everyone to get. Like every pet parent should know about because the whole process of losing a pet is, as everyone here knows, is it can be traumatizing and everlasting. The grief really is everlasting afterwards. And we, you know, the reason why we form that society is because so many of us have faced this stigma towards pet loss grief. You know, it's this yeah. um, disenfranchised grief where people don't think it's as important as other griefs where the truth is that after you lose a pet, many pets to people are, many people are actually closer to their pets than they were to any family yes. member they've ever had. Right. And so I'm like, that's actually exactly. a bigger grief. <laughs> like you've lost your constant companion that you've had. And so um, we're trying to bring awareness to that and then just try to have resources to help support people that are dealing with it. That is perfect because it, it's also not linear. You know, I think, I think yeah. people forget that too, is that letting pet parents know it's not linear. I mean, sometimes your dog is going to tank and then they rally and then they tank and then they rally and then they're fine and it's normal and you think everything's going well and then it's not. It's yeah. just, it's kind of a roller coaster sometimes depending on the disease processes that, that, you know, each dog might be experiencing or not experiencing. I mean, sometimes it's definitely not that difficult, but um, I think some client education, using those resources and utilizing that to, to have those conversations with a pet parent to say, listen, it might not be a complete gradual decline. Some days may be, may be like this. Some days may be like that. Just a little something to, you know, help them say, oh my gosh, this is completely abnormal. I don't know what to do. You know, when should I call? When should I not? And just understanding some of that process if they've never been through it before, yeah. um, I think is great. And really with, um, I've seen so many hospitals really um, be much more supportive in terms of grief loss. And I think that is a wonderful thing because way, way back when, when I started in the field, th there really wasn't any of that. It's like, yeah. what would you like us to do with your dog's remains? And yeah. that was that. Um, yeah. And so we've come a long way yeah. with grief support, but I think that piece of having that conversation, if you start feeling these things, if you start feeling guilt, if you start feeling sorrow, if you're feeling depressed and your dog is still here, there, that's a real thing. That yeah. is anticipatory grief. And, and here's some things to know and to read and to understand about that, because I think that opens that um, exam room environment as a safe place for somebody to be able to express those things if they're having that yeah. and bounce it off of somebody that understands, you know, right. as, as a, a veterinary professional, but then being able to have that resource to hand them. Listen, if you're experiencing this, this happens a lot. Here's what you can do. Here's some information for you. Cause I don't, I don't think a lot of pet parents really know that that's a thing, yeah. you know, or feel comfortable saying, I feel like crap some days and my dog is still right here next yeah. to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it, and once you kind of have an awareness of what that is, it's just so empowering. Cause you could be like, you know, I used to walk yeah. with this like heavy feeling in my chest with Becca and I was like, yeah. you know, like something like it feels wrong, like whatever. And it just, I was worrying about her, worrying about losing her. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was just, just helpful to be like, okay, you're just worried about losing her. Like, let's, let's plan something with her. Let's do something with her. And that can be really, 
really helpful. So. Yeah, turn it around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When yeah. you're feeling like this, do this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's the same with dog reactivity. When you're feeling like this, do that to this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. so, well, this has been great. It's yeah. really informative, and I love what you're doing. And um, yes. I will definitely put links to your website, your podcast, your social handles so people can follow you there yeah. too and see Becca. Yes, I Becca that's her. right. And um, yeah, and uh, yeah, thanks so much. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out in January. I think that's going to be yeah. really great for the veterinary professional community and I'm helping our, in our senior dogs. So, of course. Thanks thank so much you. for having me. I appreciate you. Yeah, take it easy. All right. Bye.